Buckle up, dear listener, the next guest will share some incredible tools and insights. Meet Lavinia Yusuf, the visionary entrepreneur on a mission to reshape the future of work and lifestyles. As the founder of Livit, Lavinia empowers entrepreneurs, remote workers, and startup teams to thrive in the digital age. The company has recognized as one of Asia's best places to work due to its approach in fostering happiness as a people-first organization. Beyond Livid, Lavinia is the driving force behind the Remote Skills Academy, providing Indonesians, and now others too, the opportunity to embrace remote work and live life on their terms. I had the privilege to be in the same mastermind group with her for over two years, and personally, I've learned a lot from her. I'm absolutely thrilled to publish this upcoming episode where we explore the impact of limiting beliefs tied to nationality or gender, discuss how we hire the right fit for our teams and how the world of work will change in the future. I love this episode and I hope you will feel the same way. Welcome to the show about new ideas on how we live, work and connect. This is Bori Vig, your host, and in the following episode, together with my guests and listeners, we are again in search of something different. Hello, Lavinia, you're welcome on the show. Hi, Bori. Thanks so much for having me. It's so good to see you. Good to see you too. So you have this amazing co-working space in, in Bali. How did you end up there and how did you have this co-working space? How did you start building up? the whole thing and then fun fact it's a factory and i also run a business in an old factory so we have something in common in that that sense as well for sure i would say we have more than one thing in common (laughs) (laughs) um and we've known each other for for a long time and masterminded right so Mm -hmm. for, for a while uh so our uh points of connection are definitely many um yeah so i i can i can talk a little bit about livid as a whole so i run a company called livid and we are a support ecosystem for startups and entrepreneurs and remote workers and uh we do that in various different ways so under this livid umbrella there are a number of different things going on we have a co-working and innovation hub that you mentioned right in 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 bali we also have recruitment uh a re- boutique recruitment agency we work with in in Europe and APAC and so on and we have fractional HR services we help startup scale we incubate and invest in our own startups um, and we have the remote skills academy which is a platform for people who want to learn to work remotely I started it for Indonesians uh, initially and now it's it's going to other places in the world as well so specifically with the with the co-working and innovation hub it is indeed in a former former factory. It's a sort of four floor building, uh, which kind of used to be a a sweatshop. Really, it looked really not great. Yes, it's a clothing factory. Uh, it's a space of one thousand three hundred square meters, so quite large. It had like two squat toilets <laughs> for this entire space, um, and uh, it had gone bankrupt about four years before I walked into it. Um, it used to make uh, clothes for exporting in New York. Um, so it was the kind of clothes that the I've arrived type of outfit <laughs> and they were still lying around when I, <laughs> when I walked into the building, it was quite interesting. And then I, you know, I was telling people like, oh, I'm going to build this thing, you know, um, and in, in there and so on. And they were like, where? Here? Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> this lady's crazy. 
So, uh, so yeah, so basically we've had uh, at, the, at the moment I'm talking about, looking at this factory, it was one of the many buildings I looked at. Um, we already had a startup um, and remote worker community in Bali mm -hmm. um, that we had been kind of building and nurturing for, for a while. Um, and we had at the time a co-living, a co-living um, co space to say so, a few, a few villas, right, in Bali that we had turned into a co-living uh, space. But it was way too small for what we needed at this point. Um, and then also when the community grows, what we found out, um, it's very diverse for us. It's like both Indonesians and foreigners and very different lifestyle, you know, single people, families different um different budgets and so on it's very hard to actually um do something that makes sense for everyone so we concluded that it would make sense to build or rebuild something bigger where people work and play and meet and have events and so on but then everyone lives at their own uh own place right um so that's kind of what we did um, and that was the mission I was on. My business partner, who's called Michael, he's originally from Denmark. He was the one that first arrived in Bali uh, a few years before me. Um, and he did at the time, I guess none of these things had names. Like he basically did um, a vacation, a retreat for entrepreneurs uh, without probably knowing it was called that at the time. Um, this was the early 2010s. So all of these things were very like not even emerging, like in the very, very early stages. Digital nomadism, I think, what would you say? When would you say it exploded? I would say like 2013, 2014, like that's when it kind of started booming, but booming at a niche level, right? Because it's mm. booming now, right? Like it's going yeah, mainstream definitely. now. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, so that's the, the let's say the short, short story, of course, um, leaving out a lot of the challenges and, you know, different turns and twists and corners and um, obstacles and things like that. Um, so yeah, that's uh, in, in, in short, the story of the hub. Yeah, amazing. You, so before that, you were in, in the UK, right? Before that, I was actually in a country called Azerbaijan. Um, wow. That a lot of so I lived there for four years before moving to Bali and I was running a different business um, mm -hmm. there and I was quite um, quite burned out so um, yeah it was a very successful business but there were definitely you know industry specific aspects and then also uh, cultural aspects quite a lot to 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 deal with so mm -hmm. I was ready to I was ready to go to a new place and I had been traveling to Southeast Asia pretty much every year while I was in Azerbaijan because Azerbaijan is kind of like um, it's literally sitting 40% uh, on the European continent and 60% on the Asian one or the other way around. I don't remember exactly, but it's like Eurasia, right? Like, mm. um, let's say in, in, in between. So it's um, much easier to travel to Asia than from from or Europe. Um, so I had been, interestingly enough, I had been to pretty much all the Southeast Asian countries but I had never been to Indonesia nor Bali. So I'd been to Thailand and Malaysia and um, Cambodia and Singapore and so on, but I had never been to Indonesia. Yeah, when I, uh, when I first got in touch with Michael, I was sort of, that was one of the areas in the world where I was like, oh, I would like to live there, right? To see what else is there other than just, you know, traveling. Traveling around, yeah. 
But you yeah. did not do like what I like about this story. I think you didn't do like the classic route on how you ended up in in Bali, uh, like becoming a, a backpacker, figuring out that you want to do this as a lifestyle, and and you know finding Bali as like the hub for that. But you kind of was business led first. I, I have this feeling that that you always had this business mindset and running uh, businesses from a it seems like from a really young age because i when i talk to you it feels like you've de- you've done at least five persons lives in <laughs> in one <laughs> you're doing so much always um here's one thing that i always wondered when so we know each other for like i think like three years now and one thing that i always loved we are we are coming from neighboring countries and so we have super similar culture and what i what i feel that um like countries who are not defined uh, like not the classic traveler uh, countries in the beginning you know i would say germany and the, maybe the states and australia i would uh, feel that we have a limiting belief concerning travel but like also how good we are in the world is it like when whenever i i have a negotiation or i used to have negotiations maybe hopefully now I'm over this but i used to have this like i don't worth that much because i'm from this country and i'm not that smart or i'm not that i don't know and i know that people around me who i know from hungary and around from this uh, uh, region and i'm pretty sure that it's same from other countries as well that are not classically the like the the cool guys do you think it's right do you think that's something that happens to people yeah I, i think it's definitely there when i became a location independent entrepreneur digital nomad remote person whatever you want to call it at this point i had actually so what i did in in university um is that i and high school as well is that i took every chance to go on exchange programs. So I did the whole thing, right? Like I did Erasmus, I did scholarships abroad, I did uh, um, ISEC internships, I did work and travel, I did all of it, right? Basically, that gives you an opportunity to be in, I'm trying to choose my words carefully here, um, because that gives you an opportunity to be in some of those cool countries, um, mm-hmm. to be um, in the US, in the UK, in Belgium, and and, and so on. And actually realize you're not worth less. And in many cases, you actually have to work twice as hard for the same results to prove mm-hmm. yourself because you're being told, oh, you're from the East or whatever, right? So to me, that is challenge accepted. I'll show you I'm twice as good as you, right? So then you realize you're not actually worth less. And in many cases, you're worth more because you've had to put in 120% to get the same chances, if that makes sense, right? So that that's something that I learned fairly early on in my early, early 20s, to say so. Parts of my family are also in the UK and in Austria and in Spain. So I have been exposed to those environments where growing up as well. Um, and I think it's definitely there, but I think it's definitely worth challenging that and exposing yourself to these environments that show you you're not less worthy. Um, and in many cases, you're actually much better. Mm. I feel absolutely what you say. And I think I think this is something that other people should hear as well, that uh, we have maybe this need to prove that we are, you know, that we are good enough and to understand that it's only a belief that we have. 
And therefore, um, maybe sometimes I think it even comes from us and not even from other people. And once you realize it, I think you're going to be in way better uh, negotiation positions, way better uh, positions when you're uh, when you're choosing your path and then maybe asking for your for your price or asking for your job that you want to take. If I can just add a, a quick thought here, absolutely. It's all about the stories we tell ourselves. Um, and we can touch a little bit here on, you know, we're both women in business as well mm. and Eastern European women in business. Uh, not that it's a competition of who's the most discriminated or anything like that, but that's mm. like a double whammy usually. And I think one thing that's really important and it may sound trite and it may sound like, oh, you know, like how you're even going to do that is, but I do tell that to um, young women I work with that may be from Indonesia, that may be from um, uh, Serbia, maybe from Nigeria, maybe from wherever, right? Or may just be a female from, from even a super developed country, right? But that feels like that's a, an important part of the story is like, walk in and sit at the table like you own that seat right mm -hmm. um because you you usually do and what i see with women a lot in many places around the world especially developing countries is that 80 percent for these women is usually other people's 120 percent like the amount of work and the amount of motivation and the amount of drive that a lot of women put in is almost unmatched right? Especially when you come from a developing place. So trust me, your 80% is someone else's 120%. Mm. So do walk in and take that seat at the table like you own it. Not like you were given a big favor that you're at the big table. But oh like you I do that all the time. I do the favor all the time. And yeah, it's crazy that you say that. So I think there's so many privileges that other people don't see and maybe uh, on the other side maybe we don't actually realize that we are limiting ourselves because you don't see the water you're swimming in right and as like an eastern european as you said like from yeah, other countries that are not like the cool countries <laughs> you kind of feel that uh, you deserve that, that favor and then that's definitely not true um i feel that uh, we also have this privilege as remote workers. And then you talk about as well uh, that there is this privilege for remote work. And how can we be a little bit more inclusive? And I think you're doing amazing uh, uh, in Indonesia with this. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, about that one? What's your take on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think when people think of remote work, a lot of this course in the world right now is about freedom and autonomy and choice, right? Mm -hmm. And all the trying to push people back into the offices and and so on it it really revolves a lot, a lot around that around like no I want to keep my freedom and my autonomy and my voice and so on and that's absolutely true and it's a big part of remote work I think the other big part of remote work of the of the discourse that we should have around it um that people who have that privilege may not be very aware of at all mm. times is the aspect of diversity and inclusivity, right? For a lot of us traveling around the world and just hopping by to wherever, whatever country, right? Like depending on your passport, 
it may be a wide array of countries or a narrower array of countries, but for a lot of us from, um, let's put it this way, the white world, right? It's a, a big number of countries where we can just go drop by, have a visa on arrival or not even need a visa, or it's very easy to get one and so on and just hang out, explore the space um, at the, the place and, and, and so on. Um, and that's great, but for a lot of people in, in other parts of the world that may not have that kind of passport or may not have that kind of um, revenue, right, that allows you to do that, it is a lot more than that. Working from your own home or working from a cafe or so on may actually be the biggest freedom, right? Like not even moving around, but just being able to access global opportunities. And so you you know this well, so I'm just going to tell the story in uh, in short for for your audience as well. So in late 2019, January 2020, um, I started the Remote Skills Academy, which is an education platform um, initially started for Indonesians who want to learn to work remotely. And the motivation behind that was my frustration with this huge gap that exists uh, in a place like Bali between the Instagrammable realities of digital nomads, right? With the perfect smoothie bowls and the morning yoga classes yeah. or paddle or surf or whatever, yeah. like beautiful co-working spaces, hammocks, pools, and all of those things, right? Uh, making dollars or euros and spending rupiah or whatever local currency. Um, it's a dream life for, for many, right? Um, and it's a reality for many. It's not just a dream. But then you've got that and it highly contrasts with the, the life of a lot of locals um, around around you if you're one of those people. In this case, um, Balinese or Indonesians who, you know, maybe stuck in jobs that pay $200 a month or $300 a month, um, which you may make with a small project or in an hour or two of your time, right? Uh, working six days a week, working in flexible schedules and working in places that don't have unemployment benefits. And the moment a volcano erupts or a corona um, unravels or something like that, all the jobs are gone and you're left holding the back, right? So um, I wanted... Because there's no university, you and I didn't go to remote work university. We just sort of figured it out. Like nobody yeah. taught us that, right? So it's not a certification. It's not a degree that you get, right? Um, it's something that anyone can do. So I wanted to build something that addresses that gap and allows, opens the door um, and allows uh, for more of those opportunities, right? And more of those skills uh, and opportunities to be acquired by other people who may not look like your typical digital nomad. So so we started with a class of 23 people in, uh, in February, March 2020, which is exactly when the pandemic uh, started unraveling. Um, and we now have over 5,000 alumni. A majority mm -hmm. of them are from Indonesia. Um, but we also did a few projects with our common friend Lily in, in Thailand, right? Um, mm -hmm. And a partnership in the Philippines. And uh, we did one with you with uh, Hungarian students as well. And now we're looking at Belgium and so on and so forth. Amazing. Because those challenges are not limited to Indonesia, right? Um, yeah. They are just about leveling... Uh, those opportunities and building a, you know, building a solution that addresses that gap. And it's obviously a 
much bigger cause than any one company can tackle. So there needs to be a lot of us doing more of that. Um, but it's definitely something that I feel we need to talk more about as people who do have that privilege, because it is a privilege. We may not realize, but it, because oftentimes when you have a privilege, you're not that aware of it, right? Um, yeah. It's the people who don't have it that are very aware of that. So, um, so I would, uh, I would definitely encourage and and welcome a lot more conversations about that in the remote workspace. Oh, definitely. I remember the first time when I realized how privileged this whole lifestyle is, and then I, I actually didn't go deep on how to change this. And this is what I really love about uh, about what you're doing, and um, because this is an easy way to change. First of all, what we've already talked about the mindset, how we can change actually in the mindset of people who are. Um, from developing countries and they think that maybe they are good for only one thing and then they will never be able to work with this environment. But then uh, if you manage to change this, Mike, what I was wondering about, how do you think it's going to change the landscape? Because I think there's going to be a lot of economic consequences. Now it's kind of what you said, we are traveling to the to the countries where we are, earn, we are earning uh, dollars or euros and we are spending it in rupees or other uh, currencies. And how do you think it's going to affect the economy uh, if we actually have the inclusivity? Yeah, I think the economy as a whole is a long way down the line. I think because local or regional economies are pretty pretty robust, pretty large ecosystem, mm. right? Um, I think what we can talk about on medium term is levels of compensation or value-based compensation, mm. right? Because, yeah, right now you have someone who may have had a job in Silicon Valley and is making $200,000 a year, right? Moving to Thailand or moving to Sri Lanka or moving to Bali or whatever, right? Or Lisbon and so on mm. and, and blowing up the local real estate market and cafe latte prices and all of those things, right? Um, yeah, true story. Um, <laughs> and I think once that company is able to get the same level of work, and this is very important, the same level of work, quality and um, understanding of work from a country that may ask for 20000 a year, right? Or 30000 a mm -hmm. year, which is already for developing countries a huge salary, right? Then we'll see things sort of leveling up and meeting somewhere in the middle. But it's not something that I believe we will see in the next few months or so. I'm yeah, sure there's a movement towards that. And then in the world of, um, so so I have a master's in business administration with a focus on human capital and uh, development and management. And that's a big, big debate in, in the space uh, of people or HR or however we want to call talent and so on. It's like, should you pay based on expenses or should you pay based on values, uh, on, on value, on, on contribution value, to the company, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, should you pay based on, oh, this person lives in Frankfurt and they need to make minimum 4,000 euro a month to live a decent life? Or should you pay based on, oh, this brings X amount of value into the company and this is what we're willing to pay, right? Um, and there's strong arguments on both sides. Um, I do think that we're going to see 
certain drops in really, really high salaries, certain cities that used to be very expensive will probably go a little bit cheaper if there isn't everyone in the world trying to crowd up to live in there, right? And I think people from, let's say, cheap countries that are able to prove a certain level of value and contribution to the company will see a big increase in what they're able to charge, right? Um, Because what's happening right now is that work used to be a location, right? Our parents, they said, I'm going to work. What was work? It was a place, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. they were dressing up and going to work, right? And now work is an experience, an activity, a mode, whatever we want to call it. For you and I, we don't need to go to a certain place to do work, right? Um, So the idea of value and work and all of those things will be more and more disconnected from the place someone is doing that work. And um, I can tell you that in my team, with a few exceptions of people that, you know, have to be at the hub to, to ensure certain operations and so on, because that can't be done remotely, for people whose jobs are remote capable, I really don't care where they are, right? They could be in the next village uh, in Bali, or they could be on Elon Musk's Hyperloop going to space. As long as they have an internet connection, I don't really care where they're tuning in from, right? And I think more employers and more companies will move in that direction where it may not even be that relevant where you're tuning in from as long as you are actually able to show results and 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 put in good good value right into whatever project venture team company whatever you're contributing to yeah i think we definitely see that we are going that direction especially after the pandemic and uh, i recently talked to someone and i asked this question and he's a classic conservative leader meaning He's not really believing in this, it's, which is really weird because uh, he's also a traveler. He goes traveling a lot. And then he still wants his team to be coming into the office and maybe giving out um, like one day of home, uh, home, 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 home office. Home, yeah, it's called home office. I never used home office, so I don't know. <laughs> and I asked him, like, do you think it's going to be something that people, that employers are going to give out as like, the new uh, benefits, like you can, you can work from wherever you are. And he said he would never do this because he doesn't see as much results when they are not sitting in. What do you think he means in that, this? And I have an idea what he means, but what I, I wonder what's your, uh, what's your take on that? I'm not sure what he means, but I'm definitely sure of what's going on. He doesn't have the right people. It's very simple, right? He's got people that Damn. are. <laughs> He's. He's got people that are used to being managed like children, not Mm. like adults. And I'll go a little bit meta right now because I think it's related to a lot of other things that are going on. And as you know, future of work is a big topic for me. And I've Mm -hmm. been looking into that and researching it and speaking about it for many years now. And I think what's going on is that um, work is something that people will do us human will do even when a lot of things are automated um, and outsourced or to algorithms and robots and so on and or to highly specialized roles that do a hundred of those every minute or things like that. And why I think that is because for many of us work is a way 
is a way of fulfilling a lot of deep, deeply human needs. So uh, a need for belonging, a need for self-expression, a, a need for meaning and purpose, contributing to something that is a little bit bigger than than yourself and, and so on and so forth. We don't need to guess. We know these things make us happy, right? As humans, this is how we evolved as a race and ended up dominating all the other races who were stronger and bigger than us. And we will not stop being like that anytime soon. We will not stop looking for belonging and self-expression and meaning and purpose and progress and all of those things, right? Maybe there's a subset of humans who just want to watch Netflix all day long for the rest of their lives. That's possible. But most humans, you know, want to contribute to something, want to belong to a cause that is bigger mm -hmm. than themselves and so on. But the problem is that work, the way it's looked until now, for the past few decades, is making a lot of people really miserable. It's making people wait for Fridays and hate Mondays and, you know, to hate their boss and all of those things. So if work is something that is inherent to humans, and we will probably do it for a long time, but work is also making us feel miserable, where, you know, where, where, where are we at? And where we're at is that we need to reinvent work, right? Like mm -hmm. we need to reinvent the way things are done so that they fulfill more, more of those needs that, that, that are workplaces and projects and so on, roles that we take on and so on, fulfill more those needs that I was talking about and make us less miserable, right? And one of the main things that makes people miserable is that everyone is treating everyone um, like four children in the workplace, right? Mm -hmm. Someone used to 20 years ago, 10 years ago, someone used to tell our parents what to wear, what time to show up, how to behave, what words are okay to be used and not, when to take a lunch break, when can they go to the toilet and so on and so forth. Like, is that conducive for being an adult? No. So we basically raised entire generations of workers who not only expected but also almost needed to be managed in that way. But that's making people miserable, right? Yeah. Who loves micromanagement? I don't know anyone who loves it, right? So one of the ways of reinventing work is to bring empowerment of being a manager of one, that being yourself, first and foremost, right? Mm. Someone shouldn't come to tell you what to do and when and so on and so forth. Unfortunately, your friend created one of those environments mm. and it is self-perpetuating itself because it's hard to get people out of that type of environment, right? Now, if he, indeed, he's probably right. If he sends everyone home or says, you can work from anywhere and I'm not going to time track you, I'm not going to check, these people aren't prepared to, to be productive. They aren't prepared to show results because mm. that's a muscle that you actually develop over time, Right. I don't mean to brag here, but you you probably know Livit is one of the best places to work across the whole of Asia. We ranked it in 2022. Um, and we also, during the pandemic, doing one of the biggest crises that has ever the world has ever seen in the last many decades, mm -hmm. we had our highest revenue yet. And productivity, like per, per head, um, like just record high, right? So you can't tell me this doesn't work, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You have to convince me. You have the proof. You have the proof that it's working. Exactly. And uh, yeah, I love, I love this perspective that if you take care of what people actually 
how they feel when they're in the workplace. And I'm not saying like, are they, it's also about the hammocks and the table tennis and the, the, the nice stuff, but it's also, are they engaged? Do they have enough goals in the workplace? Are they aligned with the same purposes as you as the leader? Or are they working for you, not with you? And uh, I think those are the mindset that can, if you, if you kind of change that when you're not only when you're leading the company, but when you're also hiring these people in the first place, are they the right fit in the meaning that you have the same moral compass and the same, uh, are you aligned in the same way? Then you're going to be able to, to lead the company together. And therefore there's going to be less of this hierarchy of I'm the boss. I'm going to tell everybody what to do and more like kind of in a circle style, let's discuss and let's see how, how everything goes. I know that in your company, there is this really cool way of um, everybody's taking uh, responsibility in each department. You told me about this a few years ago. Uh, can you tell a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And to your earlier point about the hammocks and the slides and everything, we have those at the hub. They look yeah. cool in photos. They're tiny details, right? Like they have nothing to do with, uh, they are a way of expressing the culture. Yeah. But culture is actually what happens when you remove all the walls, when you remove the location, right? Because the moment you remove location, the question becomes not where people work from, but how do they work together? And that's the real problem we have to solve right now, right? So yeah, in, in our company, um, the ethos of the mantra is self-management, right? Managers of one. So the one is you, first and foremost. I've borrowed and applied in our company many, many of the principles and tools described by a methodology called holacracy. And this methodology basically decentralizes authority to the smallest level. So instead mm -hmm. of me as the CEO of the company deciding all these things and telling people what to do and so on or having to approve everything, that is broken down and decentralized um, to each role and to each team, to each small team. So they can actually, because they're the closest to the work they're doing. Like, I, I don't know what's the best tool to schedule our social media posts. They know best. Why, why should I decide that? Why should I even approve that, right? Um, or I don't know what's the best way to apply X part of legislation better than our legal team. They spend their whole day thinking about that and studying that and talking about that. How would I know, right? Mm. So, so what's going on is that before, the way you advanced in your career is that you became a specialist in the field you learned all the answers about it. The world was moving and changing very slowly. So it was very likely that the answers and the knowledge you had was going to be the same in five years from now as well. And then you were put in charge of people. And then now your job was to actually share the same answers with everyone and to hold all the answers, to approve everything, to tell everyone what to do and so on and so This was a slow moving world, right? A long cycle world where, for example, 30 years ago, the average life cycle of a company, once it figured out its business model was 75 years, right? 75 years, you just figured out, we're selling toilet paper, flowers, milk, whatever it is, 
this is our pricing. This is what the brand looks like. And we've got decades to just milk the cow, <laughs> you know? And now, so in 89, two things happened. Number one, the, the Cold War ended, right? The Berlin Wall mm-hmm. fell and the world for the very first time truly became globalized. And the second thing that happened is that um, IT people figured out how to share the internet with everyone, right? It was an instant in, it, it took a while, right? To, to reach everyone and for the infrastructure to catch up. But the world has never been the same and it's never going to be the same. And now things are moving like this. So now the life cycle from 75, what would you guess it is? Short. <laughs> I would say it's shorter, right? I mean, six years. Six. Oh my God. Six on average. And there are industries in which it's one or two years. Right? That's crazy. What industries are those? Um, well, it's it's usually like, you know, anything that has to do with te- technological, you know, mm, um, yeah, it's a thought so. startups and so on and so forth. Any of this fast moving, fast moving things. Right. But the point is now going back to our manager that learned all the answers. And now his job was just to regurgitate them to everyone else and make sure everyone has the right answers. Can he do that anymore? No freaking way. Wow. Right. There's no way to have all the answers anymore. Mm. So what's going on is that the role of a leader now, the, the name of that game used to be command and control, right? You looked at where your employees are, when did they punch in, what are they doing, um, had a check at what they were doing above their shoulders and everything, right? And now what's going on is that things are moving so fast that you have no chance. There are some traditional industries that will probably still say say a little bit the same for a few more years, right? Because they're slower in change. But the exciting, progressive, innovative industries are, you know, already moved in that direction is you can't have all the answers. You need to hire your only ways to hire people who know what they're talking about and who are the ones who will tell you how to apply that legislation and how to, you know, what to use for your social media automation and so on and so forth. And your role as a leader becomes that of a coach, of providing guidance, of providing direction, overall direction, because that's important, right? We can't have 20 people or five people or 300 people all going in different directions. It's important to have a strategy, to have direction, but you can't do that anymore, right? So, so this is the world of today and tomorrow. And there is still a generation of, sorry to say, but boomers who insist to run things in a, in, in that old way, and they may be able to write it out because they probably have five, 10 years left, right? and they're probably not in very innovative industries. But the rest of the world, we need to learn very different skills and to hone very different ways of leading people. I was about to say that for this, I think there's a lot of emotional intelligence that's needed. So I feel that we used to have this I hope, I mean, I think we still have that. The majority of the people think that the most important value for a leader is IQ. They need to be smart. And that's the first thing that, um, that we are looking in politicians, even smart person, smart guy. And now I feel what you're saying. And I, I completely understand uh, and I 100% agree what you're saying that when you start to coach someone, uh, that the person who's working with you instead of controlling them that comes with a lot of emotional intelligence because you need to understand where they are right now you need to feel in 
what's the struggles that they are having. Of course, there has to be logic that comes with it, but you also need to figure out a little bit on how to get the best performance of that person. Uh, some people react different on pressure. Some people uh, like to be cuddled and tell that they're going to be doing amazing. Some people like to have the challenges and then bigger KPIs and bigger goals in, in front of them. So I think that's like kind of one of the things that the new leader needs to learn to actually understand how to talk to people. Absolutely. It's completely different skills. It is completely different skills. So, you know, the the main skills of a manager are to break down complexity into small, simple tasks and then to plan and track that people do those things, right? Mm -hmm. That involves you knowing exactly what needs to be done and breaking things down for someone else and then micromanaging them, right? Mm -hmm. And then the most important skills of leadership is to to kind of paint a different picture of how reality could look like or this vision, which could be, I think a lot of people think of vision as this like big, like super vague, absolutely crazy thing, right? The vision can be like, oh, next time, next year at this time, we could have more of X, Y, Z, right? That's a vision as well. It's something that doesn't exist yet, right? And we want to get to that. We want to author a different version of reality and it could be a little different or it could be very different, right? So painting that picture and kind of, you know, onboarding people on what we need to do to get there, but not at the level of micromanagement, not at the level of, have you done this? Have you done that? Hmm. You know, um, and, and, and so on. And they're completely different skills. And I think for modern managers, leaders, and anyone who works with people and whose success is dependent on people working with them, the understanding is that of what drives motivation in people. And it turns out there's three pillars of motivation and they're autonomy, mastery, and purpose. It's that simple, right? So people want to have at least a little bit of autonomy over how they do things, when they do things, from where, you know, we see now the backlash with the return to the office. People gain that autonomy and they don't want to mm. let it go, right? And mm. it's just one way of expressing that autonomy. Mastery. People want to learn things. People want to be good at something and you have to give them a chance, right, to improve on those things. And purpose is exactly what we were talking about before, right? Contributing to something, feeling like you matter, feeling like what you're doing matters. And that's why the hyper-specialization of the industrial era actually made people miserable because your tasks and your roles were so small, you couldn't see, you were just a cog in the machine and you couldn't see how you're contributing to anything of value. You're like, mm. oh, I'm just putting this screw in here and then sending this thing on the conveyor belt. I, I don't see the car I'm building. I don't see anything, you know? Mm. I'm just putting screws into this little metal piece, right? That's not motivating. So, um, so yeah, that would be Autonomy, mastery, and purpose are the pillars of drive, of, of motivation, of getting people to do anything with you and for you. You know, I wanted to ask you about productivity, but actually everything that you said around remote teams so far, it feels like those are the keys because I always wondered how do you have so much time to do everything that you do? And I know that you have still a lot of tools in your um, in your belt, but one of the things that I saw so far is that you actually give people the the chance to like, not even the chance, the responsibility to take charge. That's number one. And the second one is you keep your team motivated. 
you help them uh, motivated. Is there anything else that maybe managers can do to keep the the teams uh, productive? Because mainly what they say is that they're afraid that as soon as they work from home or work from Bali, they're going to lose uh, lose productivity and I'm going to lose money in my company. Well, I think productivity, again, in the modern world is very, very related to decision making. Um, so I think actually what a lot of people are afraid of is giving away decision making, right? Uh, rights or power. And if you have to make all the small decisions for everyone, of course, they you are tied by an invisible umbilical umbilical cord to everyone in your team right like you they need mm. to be there you need to be able to you know answer to all of their questions and help them decide everything um and actually one big tip that i give people who are struggling with this is if you don't trust people to do something or to decide on something make it smaller right like if i hired a new person for a front desk at the hub i'm not going to ask them to decide on the budget of the next large event for 200 people and be in charge of that because mm-hmm. they're going to fail. But I can ask them to figure out and decide what's the best provider for our branded t-shirts next time we do them because really how bad can the fuck up be? Right. Okay. Yeah. You know, like, okay, it's, we're going to have five wrong t-shirts. People have survived that. Companies have survived that in the past. Mm. You know, we can move forward. And once they've done that, then, yeah, they can be in charge of maybe the whole merchandise, right? Deciding the suppliers or the partners that we use for that. And then eventually maybe they work their way to, yeah, being an event manager or being something else, which is actually a path that a lot of people in our company, like pretty much no one in our company is in the role they were in a few years Mm. ago, right? Because there's always some, we call it job crafting, right? Some, oh, I would like to do more of this. I would like to learn more about that and so on. But a lot of people are like, oh, how can I trust the people around me that they are going to do the right thing or take the right decision or do the right thing? I'm like, make it smaller. Break it down into smaller things and progressively trust people because if they always worked in environments where they were treated like children, they do not have that muscle, right? Mm. They don't. And it's not their fault and it's not reflective of their ability, Right. So you can only really say that once you've tried to actually build that muscle and you've seen that it's really not going anywhere. And I'm not going to lie. There are people that sometimes don't go anywhere, right? To you as a as a leader to decide if it's a good match to continue with those people or not, right? Mm. Um, but you will find your people. You will find your people if you're willing to offer that trust. And trust is a gift, but it's also a way of freeing yourself up. Right. Hmm. Majority of the entrepreneurs I meet are overwhelmed and are doing too much. Right. So it's both a gift for the person and for you as well, because they get to get better things. They get to be more autonomous, to have more autonomy, more mastery, more purpose, feel like they matter more. And they also free you up. Right. So you can't do as you're saying, I couldn't do even 20 percent of the things I'm doing and the different companies and projects that I'm doing if I actually tried to control everything because. There's only that many hours in the day and we all have personal lives and, you know, all of those things as well. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, this hustle culture, uh, it's also an image and the leaders 
not only the leaders, but also the employee, uh, the employees who are just like, I'm so busy. I'm so, you all, you definitely met all these people who just like keep saying they're so busy. They don't have time for anything uh, because they need to work so much. They are so all over the place. And I think it comes hand in hand with the, with the conservative leadership that we talked about. You need to sit in the office because it's an image that I'm, I'm someone important because I don't have time. And I think that's something that changes now. It absolutely is. And there's a lot of more philosophical answers we can ask about that, right? Is, is it like, is it your need to show that, that you're worth all the things you have because you're doing so much, right? Mm-hmm. Or you think everyone else can't do anything without you? Like, what does that say about you, right? Like, what does that say about me? If I'm here and I'm saying none of the people I hired can get anything done without me, Mm. you know, it it, it probably shows I have no trust. It shows I probably attract people who aren't very independent, right? And it probably shows that I want to be in the middle of things and I want to be the one always driving things and that I somehow need that for whatever reasons right yeah, self-worth exactly. self-esteem and so on and so forth so there's almost like a, a full psychotherapy session we could go into with that right why why do we need that why do we need to always be busy to prove that we're worth right or that we're you know um doing the right things and so on because the truth is it's oftentimes a, a vicious cycle rather than an actual necessity right mm. um i think just before we started recording, I was telling you that I was away for a while and I was working remotely for a part of it. We have a company in Europe and some partner companies as well. So I was at events. We saw each other in Turkey. The two of us were at the same event. Um, and then I was doing some work-related stuff, but I was also completely off unplugged for a while, right? Mm. And I think there's a lot of a lot to be said about that, right? About removing yourself and seeing what happens, seeing what works and seeing, um, I oftentimes when I unplug myself, I see people massively stepping up. I see some mess ups as well and you need to deal with those. Mm. But fortunately, we're not operating on people's arts, right? Uh, we're not doing cardiac surgery. We're launching rockets in space. We're, <laughs> you know, um, doing something else. So, when I give people that chance of, you know, I oftentimes I tell them, you can take this decision yourself, just do it, whatever, whatever. But it's only when I remove myself completely that they're like, oh, okay, I'm alone now. I'm empowered. I'm allowed to do this. So I'm just going to take a leap forward. And some of the best leaps in my team have been when I unplugged myself. And it was good for me and it was good for the team as well. I had the same experience. The first time I actually hired, uh, not the first time, but I, I needed to hire, I think, two more people. And uh, I published the book like years ago and it was one month late. Uh, therefore, I was not prepared for logistics and whatsoever. And I hoped on Nomad Cruise the first time in my life, actually. And I had six days from the day when we launched till the day that I hoped on the cruise. And I had no idea that I'm not going to have any internet coverage for two weeks straight. And I hired one of my friends who recently had a baby and she was like, I'm bored. Um, she didn't know what's coming, but the, the baby was a good sleeper and everything. So she was like, I'm super bored. I need to do something with my brain. I'm like, I'm so overwhelmed. Can you help me? And I just like gave her all the things that... I think she she could do 
And I was like, well, I'm going to check on you every day. Like we can just talk every day if you want. And then I got on the board and I had zero internet for two weeks. So she needed to rise up for the occasion and she was incredible. We ended up working together for two or three years after that. Uh, because by the time I get off the off board, uh, I had everything taken care of and I didn't need to do anything with that part. I still don't know what she, what the systems that she came up with. I had no idea. I never needed to touch any of that. If I would have had the internet connection, I would definitely check on her all the time and make all the decisions and, and losing this amazing talent that I accidentally found for two or three you years. probably would have ended up being a helicopter mothering her. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. And then actually just because of this, this accident, I learned how to, how to delegate and that I'm, uh, people usually just get really uh, curious on how is that possible? I hire someone and I'm like, you go ahead. Let me know if I can help you with something, but I want you to take charge and let me know if it's too much or too little, like, please, you're, you're in control pretty much on how much I'm going to mother you. And of course, in the beginning, they have a lot of questions, but uh, when you have like good doc documentations and you have everything in place and you're just there to support uh, their journey to create something amazing together with you, I think they're doing so much better than helicopter mothering. I definitely Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you're touching on some really interesting aspects there because the reason remote work hasn't worked for a lot of teams is because they don't have the intentionality around making it work. So people mm -hmm. try to just go work from home or wherever and copy the office. So instead of having good documentation, good systems, having some sort of organizational knowledge, having a place where people can find most of the answers instead of needing to interrupt each other every five minutes and so on, like it happens at the office or most traditional offices, they try to copy the office and they just try to be on Zoom for eight hours a day. And people burned out. They weren't productive. They hated it. And then, of course, everyone needed to be brought back to the office, right? Because mm. it wasn't working. But it wasn't remote work. It was not having systems, tools, intentionality, a strategy, a conscious decision to build that infrastructure that allows you to do good remote work. Um, and the little known secret here is that actually having those things makes your work at the office much better as well, mm. right? So I was uh, running remote a few months ago, and there was someone there from one of the big fours who was saying, we're in the office. We have no plans of being remote. I'm here to learn remote work tricks and tips and systems because it's simply a much better way of working from the mm. office as well. And I was like oh, wow, that is actually like, I hadn't thought of it that much, right? But in Bali, a big part of our team works from Bali. We actually, this team, we happen to have the entire team. Um, they flew in from Jakarta and, uh, and Brisbane in Australia and whatever other places they are. And we have everyone uh, for the first time in a while um, in Bali. Uh, but it's a it's a sort of strange situation for us because we're usually remote. Even if we are in Bali, people are all over the island or working from home or working from wherever and uh, or being at the, at, the, at the hub at different times of the day and so on. Uh, but even when people are at the hub at the same time, they still first, you know, if I'm looking for something, I'm not going to go ask the person and interrupt their deep work. I'm mm -hmm. going to look 
in the system first and try to find it in documentation, in organizational knowledge, try to find it in our documents. And then that would be the last resort to go and interrupt them, right? Yeah. It's really not about where people work from. It's about how we work together, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think we have uh, time for last question. One last question. I have this question actually for for like half a, half an hour now in my head that I want to want to spin out. Um, what do you think if you would have uh, teenage children now who are just to decide uh, where to go next? What would you recommend them to study if they need to choose? Very interesting. I don't. I don't think I would actually get involved at that level of pointing them in a specific direction. I think what I would what I would probably do is whatever it is that you study, make sure that it's taught in a way that is um, allows you to thrive in the future of work, not only survive it, but thrive as well. Mm. And that is with having a deep understanding of the fact that knowledge becomes obsolete so quickly these days. So instead of teaching facts, you probably want that school to teach um, principles of thinking and systems thinking and design thinking and whatever, right? Like how to think rather than what facts to remember. Um, and it's crazy that still a lot of schools and universities teach that. They make people memorize, right? In the world of... In the world of AI, we're still making students remember completely irrelevant things that they can find in two seconds of Googling or ChatGPTing, right? Yeah. So, so I don't think I would actually look at what they want to study rather than how they're being taught that, right? Mm -hmm. And how they develop those skills and um, and 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 knowledge, like meta knowledge, knowledge of the knowledge. Um, and this idea of learning, unlearning and relearning, because those people who can do that are actually the illiterates of our century, right? Not only learning continuously, but being able to unlearn and relearn something new in place. That's such a cool theory. I've never heard this. Learning, unlearning, and what was the third one? Relearning. Relearning. Yeah, obviously. Wow. That's really, really cool. I never thought about it, but you can actually use it for most of the things. And then... Because everything is changing and I don't think it's going to slow down. It's really it doesn't look like it's going to get uh, less. Slow. It's actually I have the data. I can share it with you. I was just looking at it this morning. So right now we are facing 200 percent more disruption and change in every possible way, socioeconomic, cultural regional like wars, uh, business-wise trends and so on and so forth, technological and so on, then less than 10 years ago, 200% more disruption. Oh my God. It's not slowing down. It's spinning faster and faster. Yeah. So I think this is going to be a really good ending of this podcast. Uh, buckle up. <laughs> buckle up. Buckle up, buckle up and, and, and just make change and reinvention and innovation your friend, right? Like not your enemy. Because you want it or not, these things aren't going to stop. They aren't going to slow down. Uh, when Gmail became a thing, the post office employees could have sort of protested as much as they wanted nothing would have you know like you can like just the fact that you don't like 
AI or you don't like that things are moving too fast, that doesn't mean it's going to stop. Like it doesn't care about what you feel about it, right? So your best shot is to look at what are the skills you need right now and innovation thriving in an ambiguous and uncertain environment, uh, not only surviving, but thriving in those in those times, right? In those kinds of, they call it the VUCA world, like volatile, uncertain, right? And all of those things. And, and making change and disruption your friend and riding that wave rather than rejecting it or trying to fight it is, uh, is how you, you're going to have fun and a hell of a ride in the future. And I can share, I write a lot about those topics. So if your listeners are interested in that, I can, I can share a few, a few links. Yes, we're definitely going to put uh, every link in the show notes uh, about you. Is there anything that you want to recommend them to look for uh, when they want to contact you? Which would be the best way to contact you if you want to get in touch with you or just look you up? Sure. I, I think I, I shared the, the link to my yeah. to my LinkedIn. Um, mm -hmm. If um, I'm always happy to hear from people via email as well, if they want to... Uh, to ping me. Um, I have a Substack where I sometimes write about these things. We have a blog at Livid that uh, that talks a lot about some of the things we talked about today. So definitely multiple ways to stay in touch. And I would I would love to hear opinion thoughts if they disagreed with something. I love people disagreeing with something and adding to to you know uh, my sort of base of knowledge and relearning and unlearning and all of those things and having those interesting conversations. So please do do reach out if there was anything interesting that you agreed, that you disagreed with. And uh, thank you so much for having me once again. Laviana, as always, it was such a pleasure to have you and to talk to you and hope to more to come. You are listening to the In Search of Something Different podcast, where we talk about new ways and ideas on how we live, work and connect. If you like this episode, don't forget to give us a five-star rating as it helps in this world. And also, you can say hi on Instagram. You can find the show under In Search of Something Dash Different. I'll come back to you soon with the next episode, but until then, don't forget to stay curious.